0: Hello and welcome. Uh, this is the Unorthodoxy podcast. I'm Duncan Rayburn and here is part nine in my footnotes to Job series. As I build uh, to the, towards the startling, well hopefully startling, two-part conclusion of this series, I figured I'd often offer something of an interlude. I've decided to read you the essay written by G.K. Chesterton on the book of Job. The essay is old. It was written in the 1920s. But it's just the most amazing piece of writing. Some of you have probably read it, but I thought, you know, I would love to to share it with you here. Um, I do a thorough exegesis of the essay with, you know, reference to to other scholarship in my book, Seeing Things As They Are, G.K. Chesterton and the Drama of Meaning, which you can check out if you're curious. Uh, But uh, I think you will enjoy listening to the essay on its own. So here it is. The Book of Job is among the other Old Testament books both a philosophical riddle and a historical riddle. It is the philosophical riddle that concerns us in such an introduction as this. So we may dismiss first the few words of general explanation or warning which should be said about the historical aspect. Controversy has long raged about which parts of this epic belong to its original scheme and which are interpolations of a considerably later date. The doctors disagree, as it is the business of doctors to do but upon the whole the trend of investigation has always been in the direction of maintaining that the parts interpolated if any were the prose prologue and epilogue and possibly the speech of the young man elihu comes in with an apology at the end i do not profess to be competent to decide such questions but whatever decision the reader may come to concerning them there is a general truth to be remembered in this connection. When you deal with any artistic creation, do not suppose that it is anything against it that it grew gradually. The book of Job may have grown gradually, just as Westminster Abbey grew gradually, but the people who made the old folk poetry, like the people who made Westminster Abbey, did not attach that importance to the actual date and the actual author that importance which is entirely the creation of the almost insane individualism of modern times, we may put aside the case of Job as one complicated with religious difficulties and take any other, say the case of the Iliad. Many people have maintained the characteristic formula of modern scepticism that Homer was not written by Homer but by another person of the same name. Just in the same way, many have maintained that Moses was not Moses, but another person called Moses. But the thing really to be remembered in the matter of the Iliad is that if other people did interpolate the passages, the thing did not create the same sense of shock as would be created by such proceedings in these individualistic times. The creation of the tribal epic was to some extent regarded as a tribal work, like the building of a tribal temple. Believe then, if you will, that the prologue of Job and the epilogue and the speech of Elihu are things inserted after the original work was composed, but do not suppose that such insertions have that obvious and spurious character which would belong to any insertions in the modern individualistic book. Without going into questions of unity as understood by the scholars, we may say of the scholarly riddle that the book has unity in the sense that all great traditional creations have unity, in the sense that Canterbury Cathedral has unity, and the same is broadly true of what I have called the philosophical riddle. There is a real sense in which the book of Job stands apart from most of the books included in the canon of the Old Testament, but here again those are wrong who insist on the entire absence of unity. Those are wrong who maintain that the Old Testament is a mere loose library, that it has no consistency or aim. Whether the result was achieved by some supernal spiritual truth or by a steady national tradition or merely by an ingenious selection in aftertimes, the books of the Old Testament have a quite perceptible unity. The central idea of the great part of the Old Testament may be called the idea of the loneliness of God. God is not the only chief character in the Old Testament. God is properly the only character in the Old Testament. Compared with his clearness and of purpose, all the other worlds are heavy and automatic, like those of animals, compared with his actuality. All the sons of flesh are shadows. Again and again, the note is struck. With whom hath he taken counsel? That's Isaiah 40 verse 14. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the peoples there was no man with me. Isaiah sixty-three, verse 3. All the patriarchs and the prophets are merely his tools or weapons, for the Lord is a man of war. He uses Joshua like an axe or Moses like a measuring rod. For him, Samson is only a sword and Isaiah a trumpet. The saints of Christianity are supposed to be like God, to be, as it were, like statuettes of him. The Old Testament hero is no more supposed to be the same nature of God than a saw or hammer is supposed to be the same shape as a carpenter. This is the main key and characteristic of the Hebrew scriptures as a whole. There are indeed in those scriptures innumerable instances of the sort of rugged humor, keen emotion, and powerful individuality, which is never wanting in great primitive prose and poetry. Nevertheless, the main characteristic remains. The sense not merely that God is stronger than man, not merely that God is more secret than man, but that he means more, that he knows better what he is doing, that compared with him, we have something of the vagueness, the unreason, and the vagrancy of the beasts that perish. It is he that sitteth above the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, Isaiah 40 verse 22. The book is so intent upon asserting the personality of God that it almost asserts the impersonality of man. Unless this gigantic cosmic brain has conceived a thing, that thing is insecure and void. Man has not enough tenacity to ensure its continuance. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keepeth the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Psalm 127 verse 1. Everywhere else, then, the Old Testament positively rejoices in the obliteration of man in comparison with the divine purpose. The book of Job stands definitely alone because the book of Job definitely asks, But what is the purpose of God? Is it worth the sacrifice even of our miserable humanity? Of course, it is easy enough to wipe out our own paltry wills for the sake of a will that is grander and kinder, but is it grander and kinder? Let God use his tools, let God break his tools, but what is he doing and what are they being broken for? It is because of this question that we have to attack as a philosophical riddle the riddle of the book of Job. The present importance of Job cannot be expressed adequately, even by saying that it is the most interesting of ancient books. We may almost say of the book of Job that it is the most interesting of modern books. In truth, of course, neither of the two phrases covers the matter, because fundamental human religion and fundamental human irreligion are both at once old and new. Philosophy is either eternal, or it is not philosophy. The modern habit of saying, this is my opinion, but I may be wrong, is entirely irrational. If I say that it may be wrong, I I say that it is not my opinion. The modern habit of saying every man has a different philosophy, this is my philosophy and it suits me. The habit of saying this is mere weak-mindedness. A cosmic philosophy is not constructed to fit a man. A cosmic philosophy is constructed to fit a cosmos. A man can no more possess private religion than he can possess a private sun and moon. The first of the intellectual beauties of the book of Job is that it is all concerned with this desire to know the actuality, the desire to know what is, and not merely what seems. If moderns were writing the book, we should probably find that Job and his comforters got on quite well together by the simple operation of referring their differences to what is called the temperament, saying that the comforters were by nature optimists, and Job by nature a pessimist. And they would be quite comfortable, as people often can be, for some time at least, by agreeing to say what is obviously untrue. For if the word pessimist means anything at all, then emphatically Job is not a pessimist. His case alone is sufficient to refute the modern absurdity of referring everything to physical temperament. Job does not in any sense look at life in a gloomy way. If wishing to be happy and being quite ready to be happy constitutes an optimist, Job is an optimist. He is a perplexed optimist. He is an exasperated optimist. He is an outraged and insulted optimist. He wishes the universe to justify itself, not because he wishes it to be caught out, but because he really wishes it to be justified. He demands an explanation from God, but he does not do it in the way that John Hampton might demand an explanation from Charles I. He does it in the spirit in which a wife might demand an explanation from her husband, Whom she really respected, he remonstrates with his Maker because he is proud of his Maker. He even speaks of the Almighty as his enemy, but he never doubts at the back of his mind that his enemy has some kind of case which he does not understand. In the famous blasphemy, he says, Oh, that mine adversary had written a book. That's chapter 31, verse 35. It never really occurs to him that it could possibly be a bad book. He is anxious to be convinced, that is, he thinks that God could convince him. In short, we may say again that if the word optimist means anything, which I doubt, Job is an optimist, he shakes the pillars of the world and strikes insanely at the heavens, he lashes the stars, but it is not to silence them, it is to make them speak. In the same way, we may speak of the official optimists, the comforters of Job. Again, if the word pessimist means anything, which I doubt, the comforters of Job may be called pessimists rather than optimists. All that they really believe is not that God is good, but that God is so strong that it is much more judicious to call him good. It would be an exaggeration of censure to call them evolutionists, but they have something of the vital error of the evolutionary optimist they will keep on saying that everything in the universe fits into everything else, as if there were anything comforting about a number of nasty things all fitting into each other. We shall see later how God, in the great climax of the poem, turns his particular argument altogether upside down. When, at the end of the poem, God enters somewhat abruptly, is struck the sudden and splendid note which makes the thing as great as it is. All the human beings through the story, and Job especially, have been asking questions to God. A more trivial poet would have made God enter in some sense or other in order to answer the questions. By a touch truly to be called inspired, when God enters, it is to ask a number of questions on his own account. In this drama of skepticism, God himself takes up the role of skeptic. He does what all the great voices defending religion have always done. He does, for instance, what Socrates did. He turns rationalism against itself. He seems to say that if it comes to asking questions, he can ask some questions which will fling down and flatten out all conceivable human questioners. The poet, by an exquisite intuition, has made God ironically accept a kind of controversial equality with his accusers. He is willing to regard it as if it were a fair intellectual duel. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Chapter 38, verse 3. The everlasting adopts an enormous and sardonic humility. He is quite willing to be prosecuted. He only asks for the right which every prosecuted person possesses. He asks to be allowed to cross-examine the witnesses for the prosecution and he carries yet further the corrections of the legal parallel, for the first question, essentially speaking, which he asks of Job, is the question that any criminal accused by Job would be most entitled to ask. He asks Job who he is, and Job, being a man of candid intellect, takes a little time to consider, and comes to the conclusion that he does not know. This is the first great fact to notice about the speech of God, which is the culmination of the inquiry. It represents all human skeptics routed by a kind of higher skepticism. It is this method, used sometimes by supreme and sometimes by mediocre minds, that has ever since been the logical weapon of the true mystic. Socrates, as I have said, used it when he showed that if you only allowed him enough sophistry, he could destroy all sophists. Jesus Christ used it when he reminded the Sadducees who could not imagine the nature of marriage in heaven, that if it came to that, they had not really imagined the nature of marriage at all. In the breakup of Christian theology in the 18th century, Joseph Butler used it when he pointed out that rationalistic arguments could be used as much against vague religions as against doctrinal religion, as much against rationalist ethics as against Christian ethics. It is the root and reason of the fact that men who have religious faith Have also philosophic doubt. These are the small streams of the delta. The book of Job is the first cataract that creates the river. In dealing with the arrogant asserter of doubt, it is not the right method to tell him to stop doubting. It is rather the right method to tell him to go on doubting, to doubt a little more, to doubt every day newer and wilder things in the universe, until at last, by some strange enlightenment, he may begin to doubt himself. This, I say, is the first fact touching the speech, the fine inspiration by which God comes in at the end, not to answer riddles, but to propound them. The other great fact, which taken together with this one makes the whole work religious instead of merely philosophical, is that other great surprise which makes Job suddenly satisfied with the mere presentation of something impenetrable. Verbally speaking, the enigmas of Jehovah seem darker And more desolate than the enigmas of Job. Yet Job was comfortless before the speech of Jehovah and is comforted after it. He has been told nothing, but he feels the terrible and tingling atmosphere of something which is too good to be told. The refusal of God to explain his design is itself a burning hint of his design. The riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. Thirdly, of course, Is one of the splendid strokes that God rebukes alike the man who accused and the men who defended him, that he knocks down pessimists and optimists with the same hammer. And it is in connection with the mechanical and supercilious comforters of Job that there occurs the still deeper and finer inversion of which I have spoken. The mechanical optimist endeavors to justify the universe avowedly upon the grounds that it is a rational and consecutive pattern. He points out that the fine thing about the world is that it can all be explained. That is the one point, if it may be so, on which God, in return, is explicit to the point of violence. God says, in effect, that if there is one fine thing about the world, as far as men are concerned, it is that it cannot be explained. He insists on the inexplicableness of everything. Hath the reign of Father, out of whose womb came the ice? Chapter 38, verse 28. He goes further and insists on the positive and palpable unreason of things. Hast thou set the rain upon the desert where no man is, and upon the wilderness wherein there is no man? Chapter 38, verse 26. God will make man see things, if it is only against the black background of non entity. God will make Job see a startling universe, if he can only do it by making Job see an idiotic universe. To startle man, God becomes, for an instant, a blasphemer. One might even say that God becomes, for an instant, an atheist. He enrolls before Job a long panorama of created things. The horse, the eagle, the raven, the wild ass, the peacock, the ostrich, the crocodile. He so describes each of them that it sounds like a monster walking in the sun. The whole is a sort of psalm or rhapsody of the sense of wonder. The maker of things is astonished. At the things he himself has made. This we may call the third point. Job puts forward a note of interrogation. God answers with a note of exclamation. Instead of proving to Job that it is an explicable world, he insists that it is a much stranger world than Job ever thought it was. Lastly, the poet has achieved in this speech with the unconscious artistic accuracy found in so many of the simpler epics, another and much more delicate thing. Without once relaxing the rigid impenetrability of Jehovah in his deliberate declaration, he has contrived to let fall here and there in metaphors, in the parenthetical imagery, sudden and splendid suggestions that the secret of God is a bright and not a sad one, semi-accidental suggestions, like light seen for an instant through the crack of a closed door. It would be difficult to praise too highly, in a purely poetical sense, the instinctive exactitude and ease with which these more optimistic insinuations are let fall in other connections, as if the Almighty himself were scarcely aware that he was letting them out, for instance, there is the famous passage where Jehovah, with devastating sarcasm, asks Job where he was when the foundations of the world were laid, and then, as if fixing a date, mentions the time when the sons of God shouted for joy, chapter 38, verse 4 to 7. One cannot help feeling, even upon this meager information, that they must have had something to shout about. Or again, when God is speaking of snow and hail in the mere catalogue of the physical cosmos, he speaks of them as a treasury that he has laid up against the day of battle, a hint of some huge Armageddon in which evil shall be at last overthrown. Nothing could be better, artistically speaking, than this optimism breaking through agnosticism like fiery gold round the edges of a black cloud. Those who look superficially at the barbaric origin of the epic may think it fanciful to read so much artistic significance into its casual similes and accidental phrases. No one who knows what primitive poetry is can fail to realize that while its conscious form is simple, some of its finer effects are subtle. The Iliad contrives to express the idea that Hector and Sarpedon have a certain tone or hint of sad and chivalrous resignation, not bitter enough to be called pessimism and not jovial enough to be called optimism. Homer could never have said this in elaborate words, but somehow he contrives to say it in simple words. The Song of Roland contrives to express the idea that Christianity imposes upon its heroes a paradox, a paradox of great humility in the matter of their sins combined with a great ferocity in the matter of their ideas. Of course, the Song of Roland could not say this, but it conveys this. In the same way, the book of Job must be credited with many subtle effects which were in the author's soul without being perhaps in the author's mind, and of these by far the most important remains to be stated. I do not know, and I doubt whether even scholars know, if the book of Job had a great effect or any effect upon the later development of Jewish thought, but if it did have any effect it may have saved them from an enormous collapse and decay. Here, in this book, the question is really asked whether God invariably punishes vice with terrestrial punishment and rewards virtue with terrestrial prosperity. If the Jews had answered that question wrongly, they might have lost all their after-influence in human history. They might have sunk even down to the level of modern, well-educated society. But when once people have begun to believe that prosperity is the reward of virtue, their next calamity is obvious. If prosperity is rewarded as the reward of virtue, it will be regarded as the symptom of virtue. Men will leave off the heavy task of making good men successful. He will adopt the easier task of making successful men good. This, which has happened throughout modern commerce and journalism, is the ultimate nemesis of the wicked optimism of the comforters of Job. If the Jews could be saved from it, the book of Job saved them. The book of Job is chiefly remarkable, as I have insisted throughout, for the fact that it does not end in a way that is conventionally satisfactory. Job is not told that his misfortunes were due to his sins or a part of any plan for his improvement. But in the prologue we see Job tormented not because he was the worst of men, but because he was the best. It is the lesson of the whole work that man is most comforted by paradoxes. Here is the very darkest and strangest of the paradoxes, and it is by all human testimony the most reassuring. I need not suggest what high and strange history awaited this paradox of the best man in the worst fortune. I need not say that in the freest and most philosophical sense there is one Old Testament figure who is truly a type, or to say, what is prefigured in the wounds of Job.